public service announcement. For those of you wearing masks and glasses, you may be entitled to condensation. <laughs> I think Connie sent me that uh, from a church sign. Some of those are really good. Um, not too many jokes in the rest of the sermon. Uh, my heart's still a little bit heavy this year, um, but good morning, church. Isn't it good to be meeting together again? And, and let me be clear here, the point of corporate worship isn't our entertainment, right? It's not. But, but in God's grace, worship can and, and ought to be something we enjoy. When we sing together to the Lord that we love, when we pray, we pray that it honors Him, and we get the pleasure of it as well. That's, that's what kind of God we serve. He loves to receive our worship, but He returns it with joy. Uh, we love Him, and we thank Him. A couple weeks ago, I preached on earthly trouble, heavenly perspective. That was the title that I chose for that message. And today's message really is kind of a continuation of that theme. And I, I want to share with you some of the things that are on my heart these last several weeks. As I look around the country... I see disrespect, division, lies, paranoia, conspiracies, distrust, recklessness, really, threats of violence, unwillingness to find common ground, and that's just Congress, right? It, if you have been trying to avoid the news, I can understand why. But if you have been monitoring the news and trying to read between the lies, no, I didn't say read between the lines, then you may be gravely concerned about where things seem to be going. And I think the, the concern is legitimate. The truth is that through human history, whether we acknowledge Him or not, God is always there. Sometimes He watches. Sometimes He intervenes. Sometimes He rescues. Sometimes He judges and punishes. Now, I'm going to be bouncing around a lot today in the, in the Scriptures, but... I chose as a focal passage Jeremiah 7. Uh, If you haven't read Jeremiah lately, this is a condemnation of Judah, irrevocable and certain. It's a pronouncement of coming judgment, not a warning to repent. The warnings had already been given and ignored. So I'll start with Jeremiah 7. I'll be in verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. As for you... This is spoken to Jeremiah. Do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them. And do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Later in the chapter, starting at verse 31, And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and did it did it not come into my mind? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, 
but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we seek your, your mercy. And we seek, we seek to know your way. We seek to follow it. Father, please give us strength. Give us, give us wisdom. Soften our hearts to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, these are heavy words. Heavy words. They're spoken by God through Jeremiah to the people of Judah. And understand, I'm not saying this morning that God has declared irrevocable judgment on America. I'm not a prophet. What I am saying is that he has done it before against his own chosen nation, Israel. And we better take him seriously. I want to talk today about three kinds of hard times that come and how we should prepare and respond. We don't always know what kind of hard time it is until it's past. So let's look today, three kinds, judgment, discipline, which is related to an idea of refining, and mission. So judgment, discipline, and mission are the three areas that I want to look into with you this morning. How do we prepare our minds and hearts for these? Let's look at judgment first. We know first that God is sovereign. Uh, In fact, I just want to interrupt myself. When we talked in our Sunday school class, and after the Sunday school class, A.J. stopped me. He said, doesn't it strike you that all of these theological ideas come down to one thing? What is your view of God, and what is your view of man? Where do you put God, and where do you put man? Because if you get those right, the rest of theology kind of lines up behind it. There's a lot of detail, but if you get those wrong, you're going to be confused. So first, let us think about this. We know God is sovereign. He made the world. He owns it. He set the rules. He made the law that governs the world. And I don't mean just the moral law, right? He created the natural laws that actually run our physical creation. And without those laws, we fly into chaos physically, literally. His law keeps everything running. But he has a moral law too, and when we violate this law, individually or as a people, we are liable to his judgment. It's only right. It only makes sense. And Scripture is full of examples of this judgment. One of the first ones we see is the flood. It's early. Genesis 6, the sixth chapter of the Bible, is already probably the harshest judgment mentioned in Scripture. Genesis 6.13 says, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. A hundred years later, after he told Noah these words, he did just that. He brought the flood. He wiped out humanity, except for the eight people on the ark with Noah. Eight people he spared. You guys are familiar with the story of Sodom, I'm sure. God told Abraham that he was going to go and investigate. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. That's what God told told Abraham. So he sent his angels to investigate and find out exactly what's going on there. Well, it didn't take long for the men of Sodom 
to confirm the worst suspicions and confirm all the accusations that had reached heaven. Violence and perversion were the order of the day in Sodom. What was the result? The whole city was destroyed, but four people. Four people got out, and how did they get out? By wisdom and prudence? No, they were dragged out by angels who saved them to honor Abraham's prayer. And one of them didn't make it because she turned around and looked. Let's look for a moment at Achan. Achan's not quite as famous of a story as Sodom and Gomorrah and Noah. But Achan stole plunder from one of the cities of the, of the promised land. When, the, when Joshua was leading the Israelites, and they took Jericho, Achan, and they were commanded, destroy everything. You can't take anything. Destroy it. Well, Achan thought, uh, maybe they won't notice if I just take a few things, and these things look pretty good. So he stole plunder, and he hid it in his tent. But God knew, and God made them lose the next battle, and it escalated everything. And so Joshua, seeking after God, had to find out who's the one that did this. What happened? Well, God immediately identified Achan as the culprit. And you know what happened? Achan was found to be guilty, and Achan was killed. But Achan wasn't the only one. His entire family and all his possessions, including his animals, were stoned, burned, and buried. That's harsh. That's ugly. What about the Canaanites? An entire people, actually several tribes of peoples, that inhabited the land of Canaan before Israel. And God, in Genesis 15, promised Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. But there's one thing about it. The land's already populated. What's God's intention here? Well, he told Abraham that he's going he's to strike out the Canaanites. And why? He said, it'll be a few generations yet, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What's the idea here? That I'm, I'm getting rid of them, I'm destroying them, I'm judging them for their sin, but I'm going to let it continue for a little while longer. It's not quite done. They haven't quite sinned to the level where I'm going to bring judgment. But I know it's coming, so Abraham, here's what's going to happen. And ultimately, that's exactly what happened. The Israelites came in and, and struck down most of the Canaanites due to their, their disobedience. They didn't completely clean house. How about Israel itself? It split into a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was founded in rebellion. And what's the first thing they did? They set up a golden calf, an idol to be opposed to the temple. And what happened to them? They were conquered. They were destroyed. They were sent into exile, mixed with other people, so they weren't even tribes anymore. And so the Assyrians blended with and they became this sort of uh, pagan people of Samaria. What about Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, right? We see lots of judgment in the Old Testament, but the New Testament's all about love and forgiveness, right? Right? In the church, it's all love. It's all forgiveness. <sighs> Except Ananias and Sapphira come along in Acts. And what do they do? They give a gift, but they lie about the gift. Who do they lie to? The leaders of the church? Well, yes, but that's not what's really important. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and he killed them on the spot, each of them in turn. Does God withhold or delay judgment? 
because all the examples I've given are, are hard, right? They're when the judgment comes. So does he withhold or delay? Sometimes he does. Sometimes he does. King Hezekiah was ruling in Jerusalem, and he had an army of Assyrians at the gate ready to take Jerusalem. And 185, 200,000 Assyrians could probably do the job, right? So Hezekiah is terrified. The Assyrians come up, and they continue to talk smack, and they terrify the people on the wall, and it's getting, it's getting scary. But then what does Hezekiah do? He turns to Isaiah and says, what can I do? Where can we go? And Isaiah said, you know what? This isn't going to happen. It's not going to happen. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is going to go home from this, and he's going to die. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. And then Sennacherib sent a letter of threat to Hezekiah. Hezekiah received the letter and received it as it was, a credible threat from a powerful kingdom. But what did he do with it? He took it straight into the temple, laid it on the altar, and prayed, God, will you have mercy? Can you save us? And what was the answer? The next day, 185,000 Assyrians were dead outside the walls of Jerusalem. And the king went home and was killed by his own sons in his pagan temple while worshiping his pagan God. So yes, sometimes God delays judgment. He does sometimes. Sometimes he doesn't. Because later, Jeremiah was told by God, and we've already read chapter 7, he said, don't pray for this people. We'll get there in a second. But sometimes God's immediate decision is final and immediate. And God told Jeremiah not to even pray. No intercession would be heard. Um, hmm. he, told them, he told them, don't pray that his, his judgment is final. As for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they're doing in the cities? This was our focal passage. And God is literally telling Jeremiah, don't pray. It's pointless. The decision has been made. And what was their offense? As we look through these scriptures, they had turned away from God. They had kept the forms and the rituals of worship, but they also added on to it the worshiping of false gods. They had built high places to literally sacrifice babies to Canaanite gods. Now, we are far too modern and sophisticated to ever do anything like that, right? We, we don't believe in that stuff. We don't believe in pagan idols and child sacrifice. Now, we just wrap it up in intellectual, legal-sounding language and then do the same thing. We as a people have decided that, that sexual freedom is the most important thing we can honor, right? Does that sound like an idol, if it's the most important thing that we can honor? Now, the problem is that babies are an inconvenient thing for this idol, so they must be sacrificed. So, in 1973, this month, 1973, about 48 years ago, our Supreme Court invented a new right called privacy, Put that privacy in quotes. Because what it does is it allows us to commit certain crimes without government interference. 
This right does not exist in our Constitution. Why? Because it's illogical. There is no right to privacy if you cheat on your taxes, abuse your children in your own home, or exploit your employees in your own business. There is no right to privacy to do those things. It doesn't exist. There are a thousand crimes that you could commit in private and be prosecuted and put in jail for, and for good reason. You should be. But in 1973, we as a people decided to lie to ourselves. We declared that unborn babies are just part of the mother's body. This declaration is scientifically false, but more importantly, it's biblically false. Atheists and Christians can't agree on these things. All they have to do is honor reality. Now, I'm not a prophet. I'm not saying that God has pronounced final judgment on America, but if he has, I can see why he might have. I'm also not saying that he has not. Jeremiah warned against the prophets who are comforting the condemned city of Jerusalem, saying nothing bad will happen. God will protect you. Jeremiah 23, 16 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. Be careful. So thoughts about judgment. Judgment is real. Judgment is inevitable. Judgment is for individuals, and judgment is for nations. Judgment is for kings, and judgment is for nobodies. Do you believe in God's judgment? Do you think that judgment ended when Jesus came? Judgment is good, and judgment is right. When we see all the injustice in the world, do you not want justice? We're impatient. We want to see it now, although we usually want to focus on just the judgment on the injustices that we want to pay attention to, right? But God's judgment is complete. It is complete. But sometimes, from our perspective, it is delayed. Judgment can affect everyone. When Jerusalem fell, Jeremiah ended up in Egypt where he died. Now, he was righteous, but he suffered with his nation. Jeremiah was not the people, he was not one of the people burning babies on high places. But Jeremiah suffered when the nation fell. Just trying to keep it real. What can we do? What should we do? We must pray, of course. I don't think, although God directly instructed Jeremiah not to pray, we don't have such an instruction. We are instructed to pray. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our church. Pray for each other. We should be praying. Pray for our nation. Pray for justice. Pray for grace and mercy. Pray for love and unity. We should be faithful. We're called over and over and over again in the epistles to live holy lives of grace and purity. That's what Christians do. We should be witnesses for God's truth. So we should be praying, we should be faithful, and we should be witnessing for God's truth. We should be telling people the truth. And just like these prophets, there are they will hear or they will not hear, but you are to speak. We're to pray, we are to teach, we're to, to witness. Let's talk for a moment about discipline and refining. 
Discipline is, can feel like judgment, and it can look kind of like judgment, but it's different in that judgment ends in death, whereas discipline ends in purpose, right? So let's think about discipline and refining. Just a few examples. We look at Jacob. Jacob is an interesting character. His life was characterized by deceit, his early life. Um, after he tricked his father into the blessing, he fled. And when he fled, he never saw his mother again. And that's not really highlighted so much. But think about that. We know from Scripture how close Jacob and his mother were. But he had to flee from his brother, and he, didn't see, he never saw his mom again. That was hard. I'm sure that was hard. He fled basically with nothing. He went to his uncle's, and he worked for his uncle, and his uncle wasn't really honest with him. He tricked him. He took advantage of him. Now, he, he got uh, a couple wives out of it, but that was a very expensive deal. Um, but, but God used it to shape his faith, right? It shaped Jacob, and it shaped his faith. Jacob, Jacob actually got a new name, struggles with God, Israel, because of this. Because God said, you're going to struggle with me, but it's going to shape you into what you need to be, what I have created you to be, which was a chosen nation. Not just a man, but a chosen nation. Think about Joseph. Now, Joseph is interesting because as far as we can see, he did nothing wrong. He was innocent, but he was sold into slavery, imprisoned on a false accusation, and then forgotten for seven years in jail for nothing. He didn't do anything wrong. What was God doing? How could God allow this injustice? Because it was, from a human perspective, absolutely injustice on Joseph. What was God doing? Preparing? No. Uh, He seemed at least brash in that he was willing to really share the experience of his dream about about lording it over his brother and even his parents. Um, Maybe that was youthful indiscretion. Maybe it was a little bit of pride. I don't know. The Bible doesn't quite tell us. But he did share those things. And he flaunted his coat, too. He wore that coat around. He loved it. And his brothers hated it. Was he proud? I don't know. But he probably wasn't after seven years in jail. All indications are that he was faithful in this hardship. Maybe God wanted to humble him. Maybe he wanted to show him what it's like to have nothing and no power so that he'd be prepared to have all kinds of power. And when he rose to power, he was ready to serve the Pharaoh the people of Egypt, and even the neighboring countries. He, and he served all of those groups. He did it with strength, humility, and kindness because God shaped him. God prepared him to do that. We think of David, pursued by Saul. He had done nothing wrong to Saul, nothing at all. In fact, he had only been a blessing to Saul. But Saul wanted to kill him out of jealousy. And then David was tested twice, given the opportunity to kill Saul. But he didn't take it, even though he was on the run, his life threatened, pinched between Saul and his people and the Philistines and their people. And David had to wait until it was was God's time to take Saul down. Why? To prepare him. To teach him to trust God's timing and not force his own. In one of those times, he even had help from a wise woman. He was about to do the wrong thing, but God sent a woman in his path to stop him from doing the wrong thing. This is an interesting, we can look at Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not a Jew. He's not what we would consider one of God's chosen people. In fact, 
He was the one who conquered Jerusalem, carried the Jews away to Babylon, right? But in that carrying away, one of those Jews was named Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar was given a dream one night by God that showed he was going to be in a lot of trouble. And Daniel, Daniel explained to him, yes, this is, this is a, a frightening dream, Nebuchadnezzar. We hope that we would rather this be a dream about your enemies, but it's about you. That's what he told him. And sure enough, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar by making him like an animal. And he drove him out of the palace. But you know what? He didn't leave him there and he didn't destroy him. And when Nebuchadnezzar came back, this is what he said from Daniel 4.37. This is Nebuchadnezzar's words. Sounds like a psalm. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right. In all his ways... Are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. How about those words from a pagan king? What do we see about discipline? Suffering and disaster come and can look like judgment, but the purpose is to shape and humble, to prepare for service and worship. Joseph and Jacob were prepared for their purpose, and Nebuchadnezzar was prepared for what? Worship. That's it. He praised God from the lips of a pagan. In a group or a nation or a church, God's discipline is sometimes more like refining. We Americans tend to think of everything in individual terms, right? So refining is, is me having the rough edges knocked off. And this is true. I'm not saying that's not true. That is true. Me having my, maybe some of my sins worked out of me and God working on me so that I, I have fewer sins and more holiness. But it can happen in a group too, Right? And the the analogy that is often used in Scripture is refining, like refining gold or metal or silver. And you can can imagine taking a large lump of soil, rock, material, whatever, that that contains some gold. How does it refine? With fire, with heat. You apply fire to the impure stuff, and you get rid of the impure stuff, and what's left is the gold. Now, it's interesting to think about that. If I'm holding a lump of mixed stuff in my hands, and there's a little bit of gold sprinkled in there, and then I melt it down, and then I have a tiny little bit of gold in my hand left over? Do I have the same amount of gold when I started as when I finished? I do. It's the same. We didn't lose any gold. We just lost what's not gold. Okay? I think we're going to see this in the church. I think it's already started. Not this church, really. We're actually... Uh, not seeing this at this point. I'm not saying it can't happen. But in the church at large in America, I've read articles, attendance is way down. Um, People who actually will affirm their faith, way down. Um, What happened? Did we lose gold? No. We lost what is not gold. But we're not done. We're not done. I think God's got more refining to do. Could he do this with the church? I think he will. I think God's going to apply some heat to his church. And it may get smaller, but it will get purer. And that's what God cares about. So let me just say practically, if it becomes illegal to say God's truth, 
to worship fully and freely and preach from God's truth, if that becomes illegal, which this is not paranoid, crazy talk that I'm saying here. There are people in our government, not just just wackos on the side, people in government making these suggestions. Now, right now, I think they're still in the minority, and I pray they always stay in that minority. But they might not. God might allow this. He's done it before. Do you think the church will shrink in that case? If it becomes illegal, do you think the church will shrink? The visible church that we see, the numbers, the attendance, the money, might decrease. Will God's church that he sees decrease? No. But we'll get stronger, right? We will get stronger and purer. God God is looking for a bride that is pure. That that is what he's making for Jesus. And that is what he's going to do. And it might be uncomfortable for a bit. It might be quite uncomfortable for us as individuals. So pray for God's church in America. Pray for Blackman. Pray for strength, for faithfulness. Pray for truth. If we're to face a time of refining, it won't be easy or comfortable, but it will serve God's purpose. So there's a, third t- there's a third kind of hard time that we might look at. We've looked at judgment and discipline and refining, but there's a third kind, and I just would call this mission or glory. Sometimes the hard times that God brings are neither judgment nor discipline. They're just the difficulty that goes with being on a mission, right? Over the Christmas break, um, a couple of my girls and I, we, we were all split up for break, so we watched some movies. Um, one of them was Saving Private Ryan. Uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty violent movie in spots, but but it's, but it's pretty neat. And one of the big, big focus points of this is that, that uh, the just the general plot line. Probably you all know it, but I'll just say it. There's a there's a soldier, and his brothers have been killed, and he's the only brother remaining that belongs to his mom, right? And and there was a this is World War II, and there was a similar situation in World War One where a woman lost all of her sons. And so the president is briefed on this, and the president says, we cannot allow this to happen. Bring that boy home. I do not want to send a letter to this mom that all her sons were lost. And so we have this this cool and dramatic thing that's going to happen. But it comes down to the micro level. Somebody's got to go get this kid. And he is deep in Europe in, in June of 1944. Not exactly a safe place. Everything's chaos, and they don't know where to find him. So they grab this squad of men. They say, here's your mission. Go find this kid. Here's his name. Here's the last people we knew he was with. Go. That's it. Now they suffer, and many of them die on this mission. Were they being punished? Was this judgment? No. They didn't do anything wrong. They were on mission. Were they being disciplined? No. They had been disciplined. They had been prepared before the mission. This was the mission. The mission was dangerous. It was hard. They suffered. But they did it for a purpose. Most of them died, but the president had decided it was worth the cost. If you consider what happened to the early church when the persecution started, This is from Acts 7, the very end of Acts 7 and leading into Acts 8. 
As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those that were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is just a few verses and we go from what? An unlawful murder by the authorities, not not a random crowd of people, by the authorities, an unlawful murder, to persecution, again, uh, directed and, and encouraged by the authorities against the church, Saul specifically, Saul. And how does this passage end? There was much joy in that city. What happened in the meantime? What happened between the stoning, the killing, and the joy? It's simple. God used the persecution to scatter these believers. But you know what? They were real believers. They didn't scatter and go hide. They scattered and went and preached. And when people heard the gospel, and when people saw the power of the Spirit, there was much joy. There was real healing. There was real conversion. Was this punishment? No. These believers hadn't done anything wrong. Stephen didn't do anything wrong. In fact, he did so many things right. Was it discipline? No, this was mission. This was their job. It was hard. No, God was positioning them. This scattering was a tactical positioning. God's the general. He knows what he's doing. He put his people where he wanted them. He used persecution to do it, to preach the gospel everywhere they went. Was Stephen's killing unjust? Yes. Did Stephen's death glorify God? Yes. Yeah. Did Stephen's death And the following persecution advanced the gospel? Yes, it did. Sometimes we want to tell ourselves, well, God's not going to give me more than I can bear. Here's what Paul said to the Corinthians. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But... That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Wow. Paul said, Paul, this great man of faith, and he was, he was. He said, beyond our strength. (laughs) I thought we were dead, right? But God had a purpose in it to make us rely on Him and not on ourselves. In Philippians, Paul wrote, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I'm going to pause there. He's instructing them what kind of lives you should live, holy, pure, blameless. But then Paul continues, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? If I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, he's he's looking forward, he's anticipating, this could get really bad, it could end in my death. And how did he... How did he compare his death? In all the many analogies, metaphors he could have used, what did he call it? A drink offering. Now, if, if you study Leviticus, if you study the Mosaic Law and all the different offerings, a drink offering is small. It's, it's almost incidental. It's, it's not the main course. There's the animal, there's the, there's the atonement sacrifices. That really, that really appeal to God, the shedding of the blood. The drink offering, that's just a little seasoning on top of the fire. And Paul's comparing himself to the drink offering. He doesn't compare himself to the main event because he knows he's not. Jesus is the sacrifice that's the main event, and Paul knows it. And Paul says, well, if I'm a drink offering, so be it. I hope it smells good for a few moments in God's nostrils because that'll be worth my life. So it's hard. Mission's hard, but it's not punishment. It's just hard. It has purpose. When God sends us on mission, and we should expect to, we should desire it, we can expect it might be hard. It might hurt. So what's our purpose? We witness to the lost, right? The church was scattered for this purpose. We haven't been scattered. We've been brought together, and we can witness, and we should that's what's our mission. God used persecution to, to spread and strengthen His church. If something happens where we get scattered, we have an example right here of how we should respond. Do we go hide in a hole or do we talk to people? Right? God used Stephen's death to glorify His Son, Jesus. As Stephen was dying, he looked into heaven and saw Jesus at the throne. He died in such a peaceful way. It had no it had no capability of not making an impact. And you know Saul was right there and he approved it. But, but Saul must have been looking and saying, what is happening? I do not understand this. I'm murdering this guy, or at least standing here helping these guys murder him. And he's so peaceful. He's so peaceful. And later, God used Paul, the same Saul, after he was converted, He used Paul to spread his gospel all over. There's another verse I'm not going to read right now where he recounts all the sufferings that he had, shipwrecks and beatings and arrests in prison. He was a great man of faith, a great man of faith, truly one of the intellects that shaped the whole Western culture. And how did he consider himself? 
a small drink offering to be poured out. That was Paul's view of himself. But hopefully it would bring some pleasure, some joy, some honor to his God. And it did. Paul ended up in Rome being beheaded. About 13 years later after he wrote that. So, as I conclude, if I could uh, ask the musicians to come on up and, and be ready, we'll have a little time of response. But, <coughs> excuse me. We have looked at judgment, at discipline, and mission. <clears throat> we see that judgment is real, it's necessary, it's good and right. Sometimes it's delayed, but sometimes it's now. Do you think you're exempt? You're not. Do you think your country is exempt? It's not. Sin will be judged. The Bible promises that sin will be judged. All of it. This is bad news. This is scary. If you, if you believe the word, if you believe what I'm saying, this should cause some trepidation, some fear. Hopefully, AJ and I were talking, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't fear God, you're not understanding who God is. Right? This is bad. But we're, we're Christians. And we understand there's also good news. The good news is that while sin will be judged, all of it, for those who put their trust in Jesus, that sin has already been judged. He took the punishment. For those who reject him and say, no, I don't think I trust you. I don't think I need you. Well, you can pay your own way. But your own way is judgment. It's not good. There's discipline and refining which is painful, but it has a purpose to prepare us. But it doesn't lead to destruction. It leads ultimately to glory. And we may face these times of discipline and refining, and they hurt. They hurt. But they're God's, they're God's plan. Are you ready for a time of refining? Because I think we're going to see one. Now, I'm not asking for it. It's not that I desire it. It seems strange to even desire such a thing. But God, we see it all through Scripture. God does this from time to time. And Jesus instructs us to look at the signs, not claiming to be a prophet, but look at the signs. Are you ready for refining? Are you ready to hold on tight to what? To Jesus. That's what we're going to hold on tight to. And finally, mission. If we're on mission, we should expect it to be hard. We should expect it to hurt sometime. We should expect the world to resist. Jesus told his disciples, the world will hate you. Well, they hated me first. So we won't be surprised when that happens, will we? Because we know we belong to him. They hated him. They're going to hate us. Make, just make sure they hate us for the right reason. Make sure they hate us because we embrace the truths of God's scripture, because we love the gospel, because we love Jesus, not because we're obnoxious, not because we're self-righteous. So what do we do? We pray, pray, pray. Pray, pray, pray. If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't trusted him, there's no better time. There's no reason to wait, like we said in the song. But if you do know Jesus, get ready. Pray for his strength. Pray for wisdom. Pray for mercy. Pray for justice. Pray for truth. Pray for strength. And pray for God's will to be done and God's to get glory out of everything that happens. These are, uh, these are hard words. But we would invite you for a time of response.
Um, you can come up here and pray if you'd like to. If you'd like to talk to Brother Kevin or me about, uh, about the church, about membership, about, about what it means to trust Jesus, we would love to talk to you about that. If you want to come up and pray about any other thing, you're welcome to. If you want to pray at your seat, you're welcome to do that. Um, the musicians are going to lead us in, in a closing song. Let me pray. Father, we, we love you. We thank you. We pray that you teach us through your word, that you change our hearts, that you help us to be strong right now. I pray, Father, that we will rejoice in gratitude at your mercy. And if you choose not to, then I pray that we will be strong in the face of whatever comes. Father, be with us. And no matter what happens, Father, let us be your ministers. Let us be your witnesses in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.